0: Y'all sat down on your own. She didn't say you could be seated. (laughs) You figured out the routine by now. Well, let's get to work. We're going to be in Mark chapter 7. We're going to cover the first 23 verses this morning. I'd like to introduce the text uh, by way of sharing some of my own experience with you. Uh, When I was growing up, believe it or not, I was assigned chores. I hated chores. Vacuuming stairs, washing dishes, cleaning rooms. These things were not exactly my idea of fun. Although Chelsea has somehow convinced Elliot that these, these things are fun. In fact he he cries when he's not allowed to run the vacuum. It's it's really sick what she's done to him. Anyhow, I was not a fan of chores and well check that, I'm I'm still not a fan of chores. This fact, however, again, believe it or not, did not prevent my mother from assigning them to me. She seemed to delight in giving me these daily tasks, including, worst of all, cleaning the bathroom. I and mean, cleaning the bathroom is the worst, if you think about it. Gotta deal with the floors and the tubs, sinks, toilets, all the rest. I hated it. It's the worst. Nevertheless, I would routinely bear this terrible burden. And what made it really, really terrible, though, was uh, I had to do it over and over again until I got it, quote, right. See, my mom is is a crazy person when it comes to cleanliness. This fact, as you may have guessed, led to us having a number of disagreements about what exactly clean was. And so I found her standards of cleanliness unattainable. Yet she would insist I repeat the task until it was done up to code. Her code. Typically I would have to clean the bathroom two or three times, sometimes more, before she would uh, finally step in and, and say that I had done things according to her standard. I promised myself that I would, wouldn't live with any more neat freaks the rest of my life. And then I married one. And so my plight continues this day a little bit in a lot of ways. And stick to what I wrote before I get in trouble. <laughs> the point is, is that my mom and I disagreed about the answer to this question. What makes clean? What is clean? That's kind of the question before us in our text this morning. What makes clean? The question relates not to physical, but to spiritual purity. This morning, we're going to attempt to answer the question by looking at it in three ways. We're going to see what the Pharisees think, what Jesus thinks, and then we're going to ask the question, what should we think? What the Pharisees think, what Jesus thinks, and what should we think? One big thing this morning, when you think about this text throughout the week, what I want you to grab a hold of and think about is that cleanliness, this is how we're ultimately going to answer the question, so this is a spoiler, but cleanliness comes from Christ alone. Cleanliness comes from Christ alone. Let's, let's pray before we get started. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to come together as your family this morning. We get to enjoy one another's companies and uh, catch a um, whiff of what it will be like to be in heaven together with you. Help us to worship well with one heart and one mind and bring you honor this morning. Help us to celebrate the cross, to celebrate your resurrection and your dominion over all things. Father, help us to be shaped by your word. Amen. So let's talk about what the Pharisees think. We're going to look at the first five verses here. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, that's to Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat. This is Mark, kind of parenthetically telling us what's going on here. He says, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. There are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and even dining couches. That's where they ate. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, that's Jesus. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled, that's unclean hands? So basically, the word about Jesus has spread. And so Pharisees and the scribes have come up from Jerusalem to see what all the commotion is about. And upon their arrival, they notice that Jesus' disciples are not washing their hands. Gasp. Their hands are not clean. That would make them unclean according to the tradition of the elders, the tradition that the Pharisees followed. And so they level an accusatory question at Jesus. Why are you and your disciples not eating according to the tradition of the elders? According to the cleanliness laws, if you had touched a dead animal or a human being, A dead human being, that is. If you had an infectious skin disease like boils or rashes or sores, if you came into contact with mildew on your clothes, articles of your home or in your house itself, if you had any kind of bodily discharge or if you ate meat from an animal designated as unclean, you were considered ritually impure, defiled, stained. That meant that you could not enter the temple of God. Therefore, you could not worship God with the community. The clean laws served as a visual reminder to the Jewish people that they were spiritually and morally unclean and couldn't enter the presence of God unless there was first some kind of spiritual purification. This makes good sense if you think about it. Uh, After all, what do you do if you have a big job interview or a first date? Get out your best outfits, you brush your teeth, you comb your hair, shower up, you deodorize, shave, maybe splash on some cologne or spray on some perfume. Some of y'all probably do that thing where you, you spray it out and then walk through it. Make sure you get smelling real nice. You want to be fresh. You want to be clean. You want to be at your very best. And so clean laws are kind of the same idea. You want to be appropriate when you approach God. Morally, Unless you are clean, you can't be in the presence of a perfect and holy God. So at this point, we're saying so far, so good. But the Pharisees, if you notice, have stepped away from God's command in Scripture and towards the traditions of men. After all, their question says not, hey, why don't you follow what the Scriptures say? But why don't you follow our traditions? Two are very different. You see, the majority of rituals concerning cleanliness and uncleanliness actually reflect rabbinic developments more than actual biblical prescriptions. According to the Old Testament, only priests were required to wash before entering the tabernacle. Otherwise, the washing of hands, the point that's being argued here, was prescribed only if one had touched a bodily discharge. As Judaism's encounter with the Gentile culture, though, increased in this post-exilic period, the question of ritual cleanliness took on this new dimension to it, this new significance. It became a way of the Jews kind of maintaining purity, their own purity, up against Gentile culture. In other words, the Pharisees had formed a religious tradition that went beyond scriptural command. and kind of made it a way to set up their own superiority to the people around them. And as a result, instead of making them more aware of their own sin and their own uncleanliness before a holy God, they used the traditions they had constructed to establish and exercise their own excellence. They wanted to prove themselves better than everyone else. Tragically, the Pharisees and the many Jews that looked up to them, because the Pharisees were considered uh, the elite in society, people liked them, Everybody thought they could make themselves clean before God by maintaining the clean laws. This is key here. They began to believe that the source of their impurity, that which made them morally unclean, was outside of themselves. They think the source of their impurity is outside of themselves. They thought if I'm made impure by doing bad things or touching something that makes me defiled, then I can be pure by avoiding all the bad things, all the bad stuff out there, and by doing good stuff, keeping my hands washed. Consequently, religious rituals began to serve as a way to make oneself right with God. So they thought the the quote might go this way. If I do the right stuff, if I do the good stuff, then I'll be clean. Not only that, but if I do more of the right stuff than the guy next to me, I'll be more clean than he is or she is. So instead of driving people humbly before God, the traditions became a vehicle of pride. And pride typically manifests itself in two types of legalism. You have rule keepers and rule breakers. These children of pride always want to prove their worth and their superiority by way of comparison. See, the rule keeper makes himself feel superior, accepted, and worthy by following all of the rules. I'm better than the person that doesn't follow all the rules as well as myself. It's the rule keeper. Whereas the rule breaker makes herself feel superior, accepted, worthy by following her own rules and breaking all the others. Says something to the effect of, I'm better than the narrow-minded people that think they have to follow all of society's rules I live by my own code. But both the rule keeper and the rule breaker are ultimately trying to prove their worth and their value by comparing themselves with others. You know all of us are usually prone to be a rule keeper or a rule breaker. The Pharisees though are they're definitely rule keepers. And as such they attempt to prove their value by devaluing Jesus and his disciples. The question they pose insinuates that Jesus and the disciples are unclean while they remain clean. Pride seeks superiority, power, and security by being better than everyone else. It wants to prove its worth. It's an approach to life that mirrors what I call the horror movie survivor strategy, which is basically run faster than the guy next to you. Outrun the other people that are running from the man with the chainsaw and you're going to be all right. The approach sometimes works in the movies, but it never works in reality. Building your identity on how you stack up against other people will leave you insecure and exhausted. First, because there's always going to be someone better than you, believe it or not. And second, because you are never done competing. you are always on the treadmill of self-worth spiritually speaking it doesn't work either we're all prisoners of sin we're all equally stained so even though uh, my shirt might be covered in mud and really stained up and ratty you might have a small barbecue stain on yours but it doesn't matter we're both stained or to, to pick up on this prison concept it's like we're all in prison but some of us behave better than others at the end of the day we're all still in prison not my best illustrations but the point's this We're all equally separated from God. We all have stains on our shirts. We're all in prison. We can't make ourselves right with God. But the Pharisees here, they try to prove their value by proving they are better than those around them. They're keeping the clean laws. They're being truly pure. And whether rule keepers or rule breakers, we all do this. I mean, don't you try to prove that you're better than those around you? Maybe you prove yourself by being a better athlete than others or by having more friends than everyone else, by owning more property than others, by being the first one to have that piece of gossip that's oh so juicy, knowing more politics than other people, having more money, maybe having more education than others. Maybe it's just working harder than everybody else. How are you comparing yourselves to others in order to find your identity? All efforts to prove value and worth by comparison fail because pride is never sated. It's never satisfied. It arises ultimately out of insecurity and a fear of being found out fear of being exposed because there is a deep sense in every human heart that we are not valuable that we are not worthy that we must prove ourselves and hide our weaknesses we try to control what people know about us and we conceal our uncleanliness secretly we feel that we have to make ourselves lovable and so we like the pharisees try to do so How are you trying to make yourself lovable? How are you determining your value, finding your peace, your security, your salvation? If you're doing it by comparison, it will be an endless competition that you'll eventually lose. Because whether you're a rule keeper or a rule breaker, all of us fail to live up to our own expectations at some point. We all fail to live up to our own code. And when we do, it leads to despair. We convince ourselves that the source of our unworthiness or our uncleanness is outside of ourselves. Then we can be the solution to our own problem. When we convince ourselves that the problem's out there, then I can fix myself. We hold the key for making ourselves lovable, pure, and worthy when we think that the source of our uncleanliness is outside. All you have to do is behave a little better. Give a little more money to charity, work a little bit longer, study a little bit more, follow the traditions, and boom! Lovable, worthy, pure, secure. By focusing on proving our value and purity, we avoid the challenge of the gospel. Likewise, the Pharisees focused on outward purity and avoided the challenge that the gospel makes to pride and to self-centeredness. The challenge it makes to sin. The challenge that it makes to the human heart. This is why the gospel is beautiful. It's because Jesus lives a perfect life on our behalf. He absorbs the wrath of God so that we don't have to. The gospel strips us of our pride and humbles us because it shows us that we're so wicked that Jesus had to die for us. And at the same time, it cements our acceptability, our value, and our worthiness. Because it shows us we are so loved that Jesus was glad to die for us. See, in Christ we have this perfect balance of humility and confidence. Because our identity is rooted in his work, in his person. What that means is you don't have to live life looking over your shoulder and trying to outrun the other guy. Or wondering when you'll be found out and exposed. Jesus has already found you out. He's already died for you already loved you he already raised so that you can be raised with him you don't have to move between swollen pride when you're able to live according to your own standards and wistful despair when you can't live up to your own standards belief in the gospel a relationship with jesus christ both humbles you and gives you supreme confidence and security You're humble because God had to live the life you should have lived and die the death you should have died. And you're confident of your worth because Jesus was happy to live the life you should have lived and die the death you should have died. Friends, systems of self-salvation always fail. They fail primarily because they misunderstand where the problem is. The Pharisees think the problem of uncleanliness is outside of themselves. And so they answer our question, what makes us clean? Well, keeping the law, of course. What makes us right with God? Following these rules and washing our hands. According to Jesus, though, they're sadly mistaken about the source of their uncleanliness. And thus, their solution is wrong. Let's look at what what Jesus thinks in verse 6. And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Jesus is saying Isaiah was right about you. You've missed the point. You pretend like you love and worship God by doing all the right things. But your hearts reveal the truth that you truly love and worship yourself. In fact, you ignore the plain things of Scripture, which should be the main things, and instead focus on made-up traditions and commandments. The point here is, if your heart is not in fellowship with God, He rejects your worship. If you do not love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, your so-called good works are in vain. External acts cannot make you clean. Washing your hands does not make you acceptable before God. In what ways are you washing your hands? Honoring God with your words and your actions while your heart is very far from him. What traditions are you keeping and loving more than God? The Pharisees replace God's design for life with their own traditions. After all, idolatry is the replacement of the divine by the merely human. Dr. Aiken writes, Man-made rules and regulations often become the object of obedience while God's commands get set aside. Quote, The constitutions and the bylaws of this church have the final word in this church. I've seen it. I've heard it with my own ears. Wearsby comments, we must constantly beware lest tradition take the place of truth. It does us good to examine our church traditions in light of God's word and to be courageous enough to make changes. What traditions do we have individually or as a church that have veered away from their original purpose? What traditions or events do we participate in so that we can pat ourselves on the back like Pharisees? Let me let me press here a little bit. First, individually, why do you have your quiet time daily? And I hope you do. Is it so you can meet with God or so that you can boast that you had your quiet time? Even if it's just to yourself. I had my quiet time today. I'm really good before the Lord. My hands are clean. Same thing with prayer or visiting. Does it say so you can feel spiritually superior to someone else? Or feel like you've earned favor with God? Let's do more corporately. Why do we serve the senior center? Or have Christmas place? Or attend church? Love for God and His word? Or love for tradition? Why do we do vacation Bible school every year? To prove that we can. To show those other churches in the valley that our church is bigger and better. We put on a better event. That to promote our church or to promote the glory of God. Motives matter. And it's easy for us to slip into systematic, pharisaical attempts at self-justification. It's easy to stumble back into that way way of life where we're so concerned with proving our worth and our value. It's easy to fall back into rule-keeping and rule-breaking. After all, idolatry is the default position of the human heart. And when we forget to preach the gospel to ourselves daily, our hearts are prone to wander back into systems of self justification. The heart of the matter is that the heart matters. Jesus illustrates this for us in verses 9 through 13. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother and whoever reviles his father or mother must surely die but you say if a man tells his father or his mother whatever you have gained from me is corbin that is given to god then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother thus making void the word of god by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do you see what jesus is pointing out here is a tradition that the pharisees hold to called corbin and it's it's very similar to a uh like deferred giving, if you want to think about it in contemporary terms. So today, a person may may will property to a charity or to an institution at his or her death, but while they're still alive, they retain possession over their property and those things which they possess, and that they proceed to continue to gain interest and all that fun stuff until their death, at which point it would be given to wherever they willed it. In the case of Corbin, a person could dedicate goods to God and then withdraw them for ordinary use, although retaining control over all those things himself. And so basically, uh, you could say, I am giving all my stuff to the Lord. And you could still draw on it, it would be in a bank account, and it doesn't really have to go to the temple until down the line. I'm going to tell you why that's important in a second. In the example of verse 11, a son declares his property Corbin which at his death would pass into the possession of the temple. In the meantime, however, the son retains control over the property and his control of his own property deprives his parents of the support that otherwise would have been given to them and been derived from the property in their old age. Uh, T.W. Manson's description of this practice is particularly trenchant. He says, a man goes through the formality of vowing something to God, not that he may give it to God, but in order to prevent some other person from having it. Basically, you can say, you're supposed instead of using your money to care for their parents in their old age, you would say, oh, it's Corvin, it's dedicated to the temple of God. And therefore, you just wouldn't be, I can't give it to you, Mom and Dad, because... Well, it's Corvinus. It's for the Lord's use. It's basically a loophole that the Pharisees use in order to circumvent circumvent the command to love and care for their mother and father under the pretense of godliness. This is why Jesus calls the Pharisees hypocrites. Hypocrite, if if you don't know, it's a term from the theater early on, meaning to play a part on stage. And especially in Greek theater, actors would wear various masks according to the roles that they were playing. The word hypocrite accordingly comes to mean someone who acts out a role without sincerity and hence is a pretender. By choosing the example of Corbin, Jesus shows that though the sinister heart hides behind a smiling curtain, God sees behind the scenes and beneath the veneer. You can pretend to be godly, but Jesus knows your heart. You can wash your hands all you want. But jesus knows your motives quick sidebar here before we move on if you are younger God calls you to honor your parents by loving and caring for them especially as they age Don't miss the opportunity to grow in godliness and to give back to those that have given so much to you love and honor god by honoring your parents and some of you older folk humble yourselves Give your children the opportunity to honor and love you. Give the church the opportunity to honor and love you by caring for you. Everyone knows that it's not fun to lose independence. And old age often requires just that. However, don't let your pride in doing for yourself. Strip others of the opportunity to obey the commandment of God. Love and honor God by allowing your children and the church to honor you. All right, that's the end of the sidebar there. I just wanted to talk about Corbin a little bit. Jesus sees the unclean hearts of the Pharisees and teaches the people that the source of their uncleanliness is not outside, but inside Right? What makes me unclean isn't outside of myself, but inside myself. Look at what he says in verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there's nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And When he entered the house and left the people, his disciples said, We don't understand, Jesus. Explain to us this parable. And Jesus says to them, Are you also without understanding? That's a nice translation. Really, he says, are you so dull? You still don't get it? You still don't understand? And then he says in verse 18, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Jesus' language here is actually pretty graphic. Uh, He says, Whether you eat clean food or unclean food with washed hands or unwashed hands, it goes into your mouth, down into your stomach, and then literally out into the latrine. never touches the heart. Nothing that comes in from the outside makes us unclean. That's Jesus' point. And Mark here adds a little editorial comment, which he very rarely does, to make clear the implications of what Jesus is saying. His editorial comment is, "...thus he declared all foods clean." It's the wickedness of the heart that defiles, not that which is outside. Some ask how Jesus is able to do this. Is Jesus changing the law of God? Is he contradicting God's word? Is Jesus setting aside scripture? Yes and no. Yes, the Bible says don't eat pork and lots of other things too. And Mark at least thinks that Jesus is saying it doesn't apply anymore. Some of us that eat bacon are going, good, yes, we agree, nodding along. No, Jesus' basic point is that purity laws, including food laws, don't actually touch the real human problem. And that the real human problem is what the kingdom of God addresses. But behind what Jesus says here is a strong sense you know, already we have it in Jesus and it gets hammered out in the early church. There's a strong sense that Jesus in his person and work brings the Old Testament scriptures, the whole covenant with Israel to a new completion, a new fulfillment. So the, the scriptures speak of purity and they set up codes as signposts. But, but Jesus is offering the reality. It's kind of like getting directions. If somebody gives you directions, they say, oh, go down, and you'll see. To go down to 250, there'll be a stop sign. Just drive all the way down 151, and eventually you can't go either of the direction. Stop sign there. There's a little country market. Turn left. You'll start to go up the hill, and they get you on 64, and eventually to Walmart. When you arrive at Walmart, you don't, you don't need those directions anymore, right? They served their purpose. When you arrive at the destination, you don't need the signposts. Not because they were worthless, but propri- precisely because they were correct. Another way to think of it is, uh, and this is a less effective illustration, but it's a little bit like bedtimes. When, when kids are small, we give them bedtimes to teach them responsible time management, which will hopefully lead to a healthier lifestyle. But once they reach an age of maturity, we no longer give them bedtimes. Not because the bedtimes were meaningless, but because, hopefully, they've achieved their purpose and we trust our children to make responsible decisions at that point. See, learning to read the Old Testament aware of these signposts or these directions wasn't easy for the early church and it's not easy for us today. The starting point is to realize that the Hebrew scriptures aren't to be seen as a timeless code of behavior, but as the story which leads to Jesus. Jesus. Remember, I've said many times, all the stories in the Bible tell the same story. Every story whispers the name of Jesus. It doesn't mean that we can casually set aside the bits and parts of Scripture we don't like or understand. When things are set aside, as the purity laws are here, it's not because they're irrelevant, but because the deeper truth to which they pointed has now arrived. Jesus. They were the shadow. Jesus is the substance. Everything the scriptures were getting at reached a peak in Jesus Christ. And from that point forward, from the arrival of Christ forward, everything became different. We truly learned how to understand the Old Testament. As the destination, Jesus brings perfect clarity to the signpost. And here he corrects the Pharisees' misunderstanding and misappropriation of the clean laws. He continues in verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him for from within, out of the heart of a man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and they defile a person. What's really wrong with the world? Why is there strife and suffering? Why do relationships fall apart? jesus is saying we are what's wrong it's what comes from the inside it's the self-centeredness and the pride of the human heart what's wrong with the world it's sin when roxette sang listen to your heart and when somebody tells you to follow your heart they are giving you demonic advice Are you guilty of listening to your heart rather than the counsel of God? The heart is the center of human personality. The will whose separation from God was bemoaned in the Isaiah quotation back in verse 6 here. Their heart is far from me. And Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. The heart is sick. Uncleanliness comes from inside, not from outside. Uncleanliness can no longer be considered a property of objects, but rather a description of inner attitudes, a condition of the heart. The goodness of a deed depends not solely on its doing, but primarily on its intent. It is precisely the heart that the tradition of the elders fails to address. And because of this, it fails to represent either the commandment or the will of God. Misses the point. So let's contrast what the Pharisees think with what Jesus thinks. The Pharisees think that the problem of uncleanliness is outside of themselves, and they solve this problem by attempting to make themselves clean by observing religious rituals, traditions, and rules. In their view, purity works from the outside in. They can wash their hands and be made clean. Jesus corrects this thinking by showing that the problem of uncleanness isn't outside of people, but inside. Accordingly, the only way one can be clean is, Is by being purified from the inside out. Now here's the interesting thing. Jesus doesn't explicitly offer a solution here in the text. He says you have the problem wrong. Cleansing works from the inside out. What goes in a man that doesn't make him unclean. But what comes out. But he doesn't offer a solution. He says your heart is wicked. The heart is what makes you unclean. Sin is what makes you unclean. And then he lists off all those sins. These are what defile a person. That's all we get. And so we're left to ask the question. What should we think? How can we be made clean? How can we be made right with God? If worship is only acceptable when our hearts are in fellowship with God, then how can we offer acceptable worship to God without cleansing? How do we solve this problem of being unclean or unworthy? Mark slyly gives us the solution in the very next story of the Syrophoenician woman and throughout his gospel. The solution is faith in Jesus. Mark will, has been, and will continue to bolster his point, this point, throughout the rest of the gospel. He'll profile Jesus as the one who can produce the inner transformation that the law requires but cannot effect. So, how can our hearts be transformed by Jesus? How can we be made worthy, acceptable, and clean before God? How can we have security, knowing that our value isn't contingent upon our performance? By repenting and believing in the gospel. By turning from our way of doing life and turning towards God's way of doing life. By rooting our identity, not in our rule-keeping or in our rule-breaking, but in Jesus. By founding ourselves, by uniting ourselves with Jesus... Being clean comes not by performance, but by God's promise. Cleanliness comes from Christ alone. Friends, you can be made clean. You can be in right relationship with God. All you have to do is come like the leper all the way back in chapter 1. Kneeling before Jesus and saying, If you will, make me clean. And Jesus will take you into his arms and declare, I will be clean immediately you will be made new, eternally in fellowship with God, the God who loves you and gave himself for you. The cross is a picture of the cost of our sin, of our uncleanness. It shows us just how filthy our hearts are. The cross is a picture of the greatness of God's love, his willingness to purify us. The cross means you can stop trying to clean yourself up. That you can stop trying to prove your worth by your performance. Jesus has proven your worth by fulfilling the promise of God. True satisfaction, true cleanliness comes from Christ alone. So we must daily, continually remind ourselves of the gospel. Remind ourselves that we are our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Secure. We needn't compare ourselves to others to find our value or our worth. We needn't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and do enough good things to earn favor with God. We need simply continue to trust. If you don't know Jesus this morning, you can. Simple. Give your heart to Jesus and be made clean. Would you pray together with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for living the perfect life that we should have lived and dying the perfect death on our behalf. We thank you for your majesty, which is more thrilling to us than any drama. We thank you for your voice, which can shatter rocks and melt these hardened hearts. Pray that we would hear your voice and your word, that we have heard it, that we would be shaped by it throughout the week, that you would uh, destroy any system of self-salvation that we might be adhering to. Pray that you would help us to trust you daily, to give our hearts to you daily. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.